You know, whenever we go on any of our kind of slightly more salty missions, we will get all our admin in place. We'll get our wills in place. We'll make sure that we've got all our documents in the right place that our partners or our friends or our family could get to. Because there's a chance that we may not come back, and that's not being over melodramatic. It's the fact that you are going into an area where you can mitigate only so much risk. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Grimace, and in this episode, you'll hear about how Will Geddes keeps A-list celebrities and top executives safe overseas, how he outran the 2004 tsunami in Thailand, and became known as the real-life James Bond. If you're a real road warrior, you'll pride yourself on traveling light, going several days or perhaps even weeks, living out of a carry-on bag. But my guest in this episode is accustomed to leaving for the airport with nothing but his phone, passport, and wallet. Will Geddes runs a private security firm in the UK, and his work protecting celebrities like Matt Damon and Reese Witherspoon has brought him to some of the world's most dangerous places. While he doesn't go looking for trouble, he's become quite good at finding it. Despite several stints in Iraq and Afghanistan, his closest brush with death was on the beaches of Thailand when the 2004 tsunami flattened the town he was vacationing in. While not always cheating death, Will has an incredible collection of experiences to pull from to help everyday people become safer and smarter travelers. And I enjoyed our conversation immensely for that reason. Perhaps his best advice, always smile at the man with a gun. He joined me on a call from his home in London and I was interested to hear how the pandemic has affected his company's operations. Before we get going, just a heads up that I was still working out the kinks of producing the show. So you'll have to forgive a couple of hiccups with the audio along the way. Enjoy. You know, we're in the specialist security sector and we've been impacted pretty drastically in some respects, but also we've been lent on by quite a few companies in others. So when we look at the conventional business model and the sort of service delivery, a lot of that would range from close protection of executives, um, either who are under risk or threat or could be potentially traveling. Surveillance operations when we have investigations, due diligence where one's gathering intelligence obviously on investment opportunities or investment partners that some of the companies in the financial services might be looking at. But inevitably, the impact of the pandemic has meant that everybody has been in lockdown. So, you know, the bad guys aren't moving around. Uh, The good guys aren't investing in anything because they don't quite know what the markets are doing. And as a direct result, you know, people are not traveling and they themselves obviously don't need protecting. So that in many ways obviously brought our industry very much to a halt. But one of the things that we do an awful lot of is what we call human risk management. And that will be to help and facilitate companies operating in what is often termed as non-permissive environment. And that could be as a result of war, politics, instability, uh, poverty, famine, or even environmental disasters. And we'll help a company navigate uh, within that kind of environment and mitigate the kind of risks that they could face. COVID in many ways is a, a non-permissive environment that has been somewhat blanketing the world world. We've had to reframe it in our minds as to how we can help and advise clients to get back to work, uh, but to do so as safely as they possibly can. And I, I imagine you're probably as curious as anybody, but perhaps a bit nervous to see what some of these environments might look like after months, if not, hopefully, hopefully not years of nobody visiting. 
Um, how long has it been since you you last flew? Well, for me, flying wise, not until not really since the beginning of this year. Um, I, I tend to do a lot less traveling because, uh, like you, I spend <laughs> my my second home was actually an airport or an aeroplane. So, you know, and it's funny, and you you know this yourself, and I'm sure you know as a, a very very sort of veteran traveler that it's really quite bizarre when you adjust from that kind of tempo where you literally are on autopilot. You know where your passport is, you've got your bag, you can pack it in seconds and you're off and away. And probably like, much like us, Ian, you're the, you're the same in so much as you've got your go bag, uh, you have to go away it's super quick and you don't even think about it. You kind of sleepwalk your way through the airport. And when you stop doing that so regularly and that all comes to a halt, your whole body starts to adjust and your brain adjusts and you, you kind of get that anxiety of where the hell am I going? Am I going anywhere or am I not? <laughs> Obviously acknowledging that it's going to be different in the future, but can you walk me through a typical day when you're on the job with some of these high profile principles? And I know you may not be able to confirm nor deny some of these uh, people you've worked for, but some of these high profile celebrities like Reese Witherspoon or Matt Damon and perhaps even Paris Hilton. <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is I've, I've over my years in, you know, I've been doing this for an awfully long time, over 25 years now. I've had heads of state, I've had royal families, I've had Hollywood celebrities, maybe one or two of the people you've mentioned. And quite typically, you know, certainly from a, a standard operational level, you know, we will always get up incredibly early, much earlier than the principal, obviously, uh, to plan and prep and just check and test, obviously, all the measures that we have in place to ensure that whatever the client's itinerary is going to be is going to be done efficiently and effectively. Now, one of the things that we, we always look at, and quite often these trips in, as you can imagine, are overseas, and you get your packing down to a fine art so keeping on the travel thing and you also know to pack light and it's and literally i cannot remember the last time i actually had hold luggage and i can go for a two-week trip literally from carry-on but it's thinking about it it's thinking ahead of like okay are you traveling in a particular class on the airline or can you make friends with the air crew to actually get them to give you one of the sort of uh the hospitality bags that you get in business so that you then don't have to pack your toothbrush in your toothpaste and your razor that's all there and you can pack it down into your bag <laughs> keep it as simple as possible i've kind of always fantasized about doing this but have you ever just gotten on a plane with your phone and your wallet oh god yeah absolutely lots of times it is uh I, and actually you know what i learned that from my first wife actually she said to me i remember she used to pack super light and she wasn't an operator i can add you but uh, she said to me, uh, you know what, Will? All you need is your passport, your phone, and your credit card, and you can go anywhere. And it's and it's super true. But I had a couple of very quick uh, rallies. I had one to Latin America on one particular occasion where I had a female executive who had been robbed, uh, but in slightly embarrassing circumstances. Uh, she'd invited a young local guy back to her room, and she was quite a high-level executive. And uh, when she was fast asleep, he made off with 
everything. So she calls me and she goes, well, uh, I need some help. I've told the, uh, I don't know what to tell the office. And I said, well, look, just tell them you're not well and you're going to stay in your hotel until I can get to you. Literally, I was in, I was out and about. I didn't have time to go home uh, and pack anything. So I went straight to the airport with uh, my passport, which as operators, we generally always carry our passport, not just for travel and emergencies like that, but also for ID if you're going into particular locations. So you've got your photo ID Mm. with you. But that was was one example. Wow. That's a crazy story. And I I know you have lots more. I mean, it sounds like this woman was lucky that it was just for all intents and purposes, material items. But I know sometimes that there's bigger threats and, you know, you deal with mitigating the risk of kidnapping and things like that. And I wonder um, if you can speak to what are some of the circumstances under which that happens? And, you know, I've read some stuff that you've talked about how these companies have kidnap insurance. And of course, they want to keep that on the DL. Would love it if you could kind of bring us into that world a bit. Yeah, no worries at all. So, you know, quite often, um, most major companies, particularly if they're operating in territories where there is a heightened risk of kidnapping. So Mexico is a very good example. Mexico still stands pretty much as number one in the charts of uh, kidnapped locations around the world. It used to be places like Bogota. To be honest, Colombia, I don't know whether you've been there, Ian. It's a beautiful country. I haven't. If you find, if, if you have someone that you're madly in love with, take them to Cartagena. It's the most romantic city ever. Mexico is obviously high risk. Brazil, still very naughty. It's quite cheeky there, uh, especially around Sao Paulo. Then all the usual places, Iraq, Afghanistan, South Sudan. What will happen is the companies operate down there will have within their sort of corporate insurance package uh, some level of K&R insurance. And the K&R insurance should really cover sort of three areas. It should cover obviously kidnap for ransom, illegal detention, which we've responded to a lot of times, and also very importantly, missing persons. Uh, You can have someone that just drops off the grid. And, you know, we may very well get a call as their crisis responders to say, look, Ian has disappeared. He should have come into the office this morning. Uh, we need to, uh, we're, we're really concerned, and particularly if it is in a high kidnap environment or a high risk of kidnapping environment, because ultimately it's then a waiting game thinking, hopefully Ian's okay, but we could anticipate potentially getting a ransom demand. And there are lots of different types of kidnappings. I mean, in somewhere like Mexico, they generally tend to be what we call express kidnaps. So it could be that you go mm-hmm. to an ATM in Mexico City one of the big cities and a couple of uh, local cartel guys they just grab you they get you to go around to all the ATMs and empty your credit cards Uh, then they may hold you overnight until your your limits reset and then they'll do the same again and then they'll do the same again until such time as they've spanked your credit cards completely and then you have the slightly more organized ones where you'll have the kidnappers that will actually take you and they could be a kind of a street gang But what they'll do is they'll be vectored into a bigger cartel. So they'll take you and then they'll sell you to a cartel. Uh, And then that cartel will probably be far better geared and with a better system and infrastructure in place to be able to hold you, run the communications, demand the ransoms, and even coordinate things like the ransom drop. So, you know, I've managed a few cases around the world. I've had all my guys get out safely, which is always good. And we tend to do, we tend to do the more what they call non-underwritten risk, which is where a company hasn't got the insurance and they go, Ian's gone, we need some help. And that's where we jump in. Wow. 
when you travel, it's more like a mission. Speaking to that point, you've even earned yourself the nickname, the real life James Bond. So how do you feel about that label? And how did you get into this? Oh my goodness. What do I start with first? Uh, well, the, the tag is, you know what? It's, it's, I've kind of, kind of got used to it because it's kind of embarrassing. You know, you kind of cringe when you hear it. Um, but you know, when you step back from it, it's, I suppose it's very complimentary. So, uh, so I should just gracefully bow in a very modest way and say thanks. But then again, it depends on who's saying it. If it's guys in my industry, then I know they're definitely taking the mic. <laughs> in terms of getting into the industry, I'm one of the really unusual ones, Ian. I, I didn't come in through the very uh, conventional pathways that a lot of guys do. You know, you have a lot of guys that will leave the military, law enforcement, uh, the intelligence community, and they will join. I wasn't in any of those particular units. So I've kind of created a bit of a pathway for those that don't come from those environments. And when I first started in this game many, many years ago, it was really difficult to break through. You know, I came from more of a combative background where I've been uh, a civilian contractor. I consulted with law enforcement agencies as an unarmed combat instructor uh, in various parts of the world and worked with the military. Because I wasn't part of the brethren, you know, a lot of people would look at me very, very sideways. And uh, and a lot of clients would too. You'd walk in the door and they'd be expecting a couple of guys, you know, from our part of the world who were a former 2-2 SAS or they were from Scotland Yard or they were from MI5 or 6. And there's me walking in and going, hey, hi, how are you guys? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it took a while. But hopefully what I did create a path is that it kind of broke that mold that you had to be from one of those environments and I've operated again I, you know in, in my years I've operated a, uh, alongside some of the best of the best you know not just from the UK I've worked with some amazing SEAL team members former SEAL team members some amazing Delta guys uh, some guys from the agency the NSA all sorts of different groups and the thing is Ian is that some are that, that there's good and there's bad everywhere um, and there are some great guys who are brilliant operators and and it's not necessarily correlated to the background that they come from, you know, and I've come across some guys who are absolutely shocking and I, I wouldn't trust them covering my six in a hostile environment. And I spent three years on and off in Iraq, two years in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah. And a few other shady places as well. Uh, right. And I came across the real spectrum of guys from all backgrounds. And fundamentally, it comes down to, have you got the right attitude? Are you going to apply yourself? Are you going to work as a member of the, of the team? And have you got something to contribute? And if you don't, I mean, there's an old saying, can we swear on this podcast, Dan? Absolutely. All right. So there's a lovely saying that a friend of mine said to me, and this guy was the former RSM, the regimental sergeant major for the uh, for Tutu Special Air Service for the SAS. And he he said to me, there are three rules in life, Will. Lead, follow, or get out the fucking way. <laughs> That's perfect. It kind of brings me to uh, to a segment that I'm doing on this podcast called Explain That Gram. Oh. So I, I went back through your feed and I noticed uh, there's a bunch of interesting pictures, but one that particularly stood out to me was a photo of you with two guys and you're standing outside of a four by four on the streets of Baghdad. Oh, yeah. I know that um, there must be some interesting stories there and you kind of alluded to it in the caption. So I would love to hear more about your time in Baghdad and, and Afghanistan as well. Yeah, I'm really happy to. Uh, you know what? I think for any of the guys uh, that might be listening to the, to your show and uh, have uh, were down there in this time. So I was down there between 2003, 2006. And this was right after the liberation. Um, as Sun Tzu once said, you know, in The Art of War, he said, the worst thing you can do when you take over your opposing force is to dismantle the military and the, and the police. 
And the problem is, is that we did exactly that. Uh, the coalition forces just literally created lawlessness. And anybody who was down there around that time will remember it. It was like being in a real-life Mad Max movie. Um, you know, we were mm. operating in the south of the country. And the two guys you see in the picture of me with me, that's Steve and Mick, um, both former 2-2 SAS. Uh, super nice guys. Mick, who is uh, the smaller one of the two, I mean, he's like a... He's like a bulldog, or I mean, more like a, a Staffordshire Bull Terrier. I mean, the guy is, mm -hmm. we, we call him the pocket warrior. I mean, you just put him in the direction of the enemy and just press play. And, you know, anything in front of him is going to die. He gets the job done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's horrendous. He's, he was ending souls left, right, and center. We would do the drive from Kuwait up to Baghdad, which is about a seven-hour drive. And you drive up wow. through the main arterial road in the center of uh, Iraq, which was called the MSR Tampa, the main supply route Tampa. And, you know, one minute this road would be fantastic tarmac, next minute it would be gravel, next it would be sand, then it would become tarmac again. I mean, the thing was a complete mess. And you'd have along the route what we termed the Alibabas, so as in mm -hmm. the Alibaba and the 40 Thieves. And it was basically these little am ambush parties that would be peppered along the route that would literally lay in wait to, to ambush you, kill you, take all your kit and everything else. Oh my God. In the early days, we didn't have any armored vehicles. We were doing these in what we call soft skins. So these are like regular four by four SUVs, uh, no armoring whatsoever. And we couldn't get hold of any decent weapons. So we're using local AK-47s with folding stocks. And the reason the folding stock was good is you could bring it up to bear in the Oh, a lot easier than if it's got a fixed mm, sure. dock. We, you know, you'd get a little white caprice that would come up alongside the ve your vehicle, and you'd see these guys, and all you see is like these black eyes and the shemags covering most of their faces. Right. So you just bring your weapon up into sight line above the windowsill, <laughs> and and it just sort of like, yeah, you want to party? We're ready, and they just kind of <laughs> drive off. But you know, you'd get a couple of guys who would ambush you, and you know, I'm still breathing, so are the rest of my team, so we know what happened to the other yeah. side. What yeah. we noticed, Ian, which was even more fascinating, is you'd have out on one of the jebels, one of the little sort of dunes nearby or one of the hills nearby, is a couple of guys with some crappy video camera. So you know mm -hmm. what they were doing? They were basically videoing their own ambush. So when all their guys got the good news, they'd go back and while they're eating their goat that night around the fire, they'd go, right, boys, how did we get this wrong? And what can we do next right to get it right? And we'd- They're watching film. Yeah, we'd see, we'd see their tactics getting better and better and better every time we uh, come back. I mean, you must've been thinking to yourself, what sort of crazy decisions did I make in my life to get me to where I I'm right here sitting in this, in this car. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, you know what? The funny thing is, I mean, one of the questions I got asked an awful lot by the media, you know, when I was going in and out, and they'd say to me, you know, aren't you scared going down there? Yeah. And you know what? I would always answer it truthfully and say, absolutely. And I mean, and any guy who says that they're going down there, they're not scared, is lying through their teeth or not going down there. It's as simple yeah. as that. You know, there is this heightened level of anxiety because you do get all your preparation. You know, whenever we go on any of our kind of slightly more, you know, salty missions, uh, we will get all our admin in place. We'll get our wills in place. We'll make 
sure mm. that we've got all our documents in the right place that our partners or our friends or our family right. could get to. Um, because there's a chance that we may not come back. And that's not being over melodramatic. It's the fact that you are going into an area where you can mitigate only so much risk. There's a lot of others that you can't. So naturally, if you're not scared, if you know, with your guys, when you're down there, you know, you're not all having a big snowflakey cry and a hug, but you will be going, a little anxious, and if, yeah. if, if someone there is not anxious, that's the one you really gotta worry about. Well, it kind of reminds me of that psychological principle where like a bell curve and you're, you need some degree of heightened stress to have maximum performance. You know, if you're too relaxed, you won't perform at a high level, and if you're too stressed, you have the same effect. That's a really good example. Great example, Ian. So obviously you've, you've been able to take everything you've learned from your line of work, and you've been a technical advisor on at least one, if not several films, London Has Fallen was one. So uh, what, what was that like to work on a film that's theoretically about the kinds of work you do every day? You know what? That was kind of fun. And I mean, and uh, I, ca- I caught a lot of flack. I still, I hold that movie dear to me because it was uh, it was my first rodeo. And uh, I actually bumped into, I remember coming back from it. It was a real roller coaster of emotions. And I mean, the guys on the movie were amazing. Gerard Butler, lovely, lovely, lovely guy. I mean, he was a lot of fun. Uh, Aaron Eckhart, who played the president, super nice guy. They were all really nice and the producers were nice. But we would have moments and this is where I now sit very quietly when I watch action movies in and I'm less critical (laughs) than I used to be because you can sit down and you can go, look guys, that's not very realistic. We should be doing it this way. And the producer or the director will say, but we'll know we're not doing it that way. We're going to do it this way. And you're going, you're seething and you're going, but it looks stupid and it's going to look daft. And they're going, don't care. It looks cool. And, it, you know, I came back and I remember one of the things that happened was uh, when I came back and I was kind of like, was this a good experience? Was this a bad experience? I don't know, but it was an experience. And um, and certainly not having the kind of control. And, you know, you tend to be a bit of a control freak in our game, Ian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, sure. <laughs> and I bumped into uh, a very, very famous guy in, in my industry, in, in my world, a chap called Andy McNair. He wrote the book Bravo 2-0. So I bumped into Andy, and Andy actually advised on Heat, you know, the Michael Mann movie with De Niro and Pacino. And they had that amazing firefight scene in there. You know, Mm -hmm. at the end of the bank in the heist. And I bumped into Andy and I said, Andy, I've just come back from doing a movie. And man, it was fucking hard. And he turned around and said, Will, it's not a documentary. It's a movie. And I went, brilliant way to encapsulate it. You know, and and that's really what it is. And then I worked with a really good friend of mine, a guy called Christian Goodergast, on a movie called Den of Thieves. Uh, I don't know whether Mm -hmm. you've seen it. It's on Netflix now. And we're working on the sequel. And uh, Christian, now that's a guy like Michael Mann who wants to get the detail absolutely on the nose. And he gets in these incredible advisors, uh, obviously me included, obviously. Uh, (laughs) And uh, but he gets some really cool guys in and he makes sure that the detail is absolutely fine. And for me, as much as I loved London, as much as I still hold that movie really dear to me, it's really nice working with someone who is so detail driven uh, because then mm-hmm. you can step back and go, you know what, that was cool. And it, or, and Christian's the kind of guy you could turn around and say, that's bullshit. And Christian would turn yeah. around and go, 
cool. Then let's do it your way. That's good. I mean, I know particularly seems like the military focused style of films, they do have trouble producing realistic storyline for people who've actually lived it. You need those advisors there, but then they tell you to shut up. When oh, I- yeah. Oh, my God. I can tell. I, I mean, I had some great stories. I mean, I survived the shoot, which was great. I didn't get booted off, which uh, which I, I was really amazed by. But Jerry, Jerry Butler was such a cool guy to work with and I remember going to see Jerry and I said Jerry when was the last time you were on a range and he said I can't remember Will and I said "Uh, buddy we've got to work together and he was like I'm up for it and I said you know because you know how important it is that when I'm sitting in the audience with my girlfriend or my wife or whatever or there's a guy in the industry who's sitting there with their partner and they're going look at that fucking guy he doesn't even know how to hold a gun he said no 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 I totally get the importance of that and uh, literally we would do countless magazines changes on his shorts and his longs uh, we were doing all the weapon handling to make sure he just looked sleekly ripped but he was building in that whole muscle memory so that he could concentrate on his craft and be using his weapon, moving, uh, dealing with the situation tactically without needing to think about it. And so everything would come much more naturally and, uh, and it, I think it worked. Well that's great. I mean you always have those examples where there's like somebody and there's a close-up of the gun and you can see like the safety's on or something and ends up making it in the movie and I'm sure people like you are oh, doing man. what you just there, did, there, I mean, there's, there's one scene in London which I did have I did win that battle uh, somewhat you know there was a couple of bits in it which I wasn't thrilled about but hey ho it's a movie and that was the, there was this one shot at the very end when uh, Jerry and this uh, SAS troop are charging down the streets to get to the president and it's all done in one take down the street and the one thing that I insisted on I said I'm going to fucking walk if you guys don't do this and I said is to make sure that we just do countless magazine changes and I think Jerry does in the space of about 100 yards about eight or nine magazine changes which for me was it's one of those bugbears for us guys because it's like the gun with the unlimited bullets you know yeah yeah (laughs) switching gears a little bit um it's obviously slowed down quite a bit now but before the pandemic, people were traveling farther and wider than ever before. And I wonder if you, uh, either through your work or just or otherwise, are there some popular tourist destinations that concern you that people travel to, places that are riskier than people realize? Uh, but in terms of popular destinations, Ian, um, I wouldn't say there's anywhere really especially concerning. I mean, we're seeing a bit of a spike in uh, is extremist Islamists in uh, mm-hmm. the Maldives. Um, that is ah. being kept very much on the QT and on the DL. There is a problem with you know Islamic extremists down there. Um, and one of the, the greatest concerns, I know some of the hotels have taken, obviously, some advice from people in my world, obviously, to what to do. But if you're on an island there, it's kind of the makings of almost of a Hollywood movie, isn't it? You know, Absolutely. With a bunch of bandits coming on there and you've got a lot of high-value targets and high-value, high-net-worth people that could potentially be a commodity for kidnapping or whatever. I like going to the Maldives. It's not going to put me off going down there. But um, sure. generally, you know what, Ian, and you're an incredibly well-traveled guy. I mean, just looking at your Instagram, you know, it's uh, it, it fills me green with envy 
because you go to all the nice places and I don't. Yeah. You know, the general rule I give when I'm training executives to, to keep safe when they're overseas is just to be situationally aware because you could be as much at risk in the middle of London as you could be in the middle of um, Mumbai or equally sure. in Hong Kong or you could be in Sri Lanka. You know, it's in Colombo. So it's, it's about, I don't think there's anywhere really off the grid unless it's designated by the US State Department or the Foreign Commonwealth Office over here as their all but essential travel only, I would be generally saying there's nowhere really you shouldn't go to, but just make sure when you're going there, A, you're situationally aware, B, you know where you're going, uh, and, uh, you know, and just be cautious. Don't drop your guard all the time. Wait till you're in the hotel. Wait till you're on the beach somewhere safe. Wait till you're in an environment where you can drop your guard. But if you're going through a market, I mean, I've been in markets in Cairo, in Morocco, in everywhere, you know, Indonesia, in Jakarta, all sorts of places. And literally, you know, it could just ruin your trip having your passport pickpocketed or your, you know what it's like here. So I spent my honeymoon in the Maldives. It immediately occurred to me when I was there, I was like, Okay, private island in the middle of the ocean, a bunch of, you know, high net worth people. I used points to book my day, but it would be so easy for somebody to just, like you said, come onto the island and kind of wreak havoc. Don't that tell your of, wife. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have been talking about how, you know, going back, but it doesn't surprise me that that's uh, certainly a concern. It, has that been happening? I mean, you've got these nice resorts there. They must be taking some measures. Yeah, they are. A lot of them are actually being very sensible and they're putting into effect um, good security precautions, lockdown protocols, uh, making sure that they're keeping communications with the other islands. So if there is, you know, a lot of the waterways between the islands, as you know, Ian, are usually only chartered by either fisher people, you know, fishermen, fisherwomen, uh, or by the locals obviously moving cargo uh, between each other. So, you know, you've got the inner channels, you've got the outer channels, which is where the major cargo ships are going. So most of these guys are pretty switched on to the movement. But the problem is, is it's more down to the Islamic extremists potentially on the main island uh, that could mm. deploy out there. So I think in terms of the risk tangibly, and don't hold me to this, but I would say tangibly the risk is more likely if you're on the main island. Uh, it's mm. Mahi, if I remember. I always get Mahi and Mali mixed up. M-A-L-E. I'm not sure. It's Mali. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Mahi is a Seychelles, isn't it? That sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I, I never didn't mean to test you, buddy. So yeah, I think it's more if you're on Mali and you're on the island and you're around the airport and stuff. But I think, you know, fundamentally, it's not a major issue. I, again, mm -hmm. you know, the chance of being kidnapped is pretty low unless you're really into an area where you've switched off, you're doing something stupid. It's a bit like going to Mexico City. You know, you don't mm -hmm. get into the Beatles, you know, with the green stripes, yeah. the taxis, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I've got good, you know, friends who are domestic Mexicans who live in Mexico City and they go, Will, I wouldn't even get in those. I mean, obviously you have the physical threat now and it's not like cybersecurity threats are a new thing in 2020. It's been an issue for probably at least a decade and a half. But I read an article recently about how Fitbits were revealing the location of some secret U.S. military bases abroad. And I wonder if you have to take any additional measures on with 
your travels to avoid similar unintended surveillance. Okay, I don't know how much tradecraft I can give you on this, uh, Ian, because I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure 99.9 percent of your uh, your listeners are, are legitimate and uh, good, honest, law-abiding citizens. But uh, you know, one of the things is uh, I, I could I'll flip this a little bit. So, yeah, about leaving some kind of digital footprints really key. So China, for example, or Russia, uh, where there is a high level of state-sponsored surveillance, uh, we would take precautions. So uh, if you are going through, for example, one of the major airports in uh, in China, uh, what they will often have, the MSS, the domestic intelligence, is uh, what we call IMSI captures or man-in-the-middle interceptions. So what happens is you turn your cell phone on and you think you're connecting to China cell, but actually it's being triangulated through a man-in-the-middle interception. And that man-in-the-middle mm. interception is going to be basically harvesting all your calls, your data, your text messages, uh. your emails, and everything else. One of the things that I'm always very cautious uh, to advise clients to, to do is to say, look, when you arrive, don't be so quick to just turn your cell phone on straight away. Get, give yourself a little bit of a head start and wait till you're actually in the taxi and you're away from the airport before you turn it on. Now, that's not to say they haven't got listening stations pretty much everywhere. Uh, and yeah. this is no big secret. You know, this is kind of widely known, albeit in a smaller community. Um, but one of the things that you may consider doing is getting a, a, a pay-as-you-go, you know, a, uh, a burner cell, mm-hmm. get a local SIM, SIM card, utilize that. And if you buy it deniably, then, uh, you know, you haven't got your footprint, your you know digital footprint and thumbprint actually all over it. It might give you a little bit of a heads up. But as a security team, what we don't want is the bad guys potentially knowing what we're doing, what our movements are, if we're protecting a principal. Sure. I see all these advertisements for like wallets and things that are RFID proof. Cool. And I, it's always struck me as a little bit of a gimmick. Do you recommend people use stuff like that and how does how does how does that actually work okay so the scanner all they have to do is be quite close to you so it could be you standing in a queue you know social distancing is going to screw that up a little bit but uh you know if you're standing at an atm or someone's passing you in a lift or you're in a crowded market um i've seen that technology where there are apps that you can download mainly work on the android uh, rather than uh, iphone only because of the lack of the, the lesser controls that there are on Google Play Store than there are on the App Store. And it can read the data off your card. So these mm-hmm. RFID blockers, if they work, there are a lot out there yeah. that say they do and they don't. Uh, it's right. not a bad idea. But I would generally advise, you know, quite often many people will carry three, four, five credit cards in their, in mm-hmm. their wallet. Why? I carry 16. Brilliant. Brilliant. Because you need all 16 every day, Ian. Ugh. You're probably only going to be using one or two. So definitely take two. But, you know, take it out. Leave them at home. Leave them in the safe. You know, you you don't need them. So it's a bit like using the same password for all your online accounts. (laughs) Ooh. Well, putting it in that context, I'll have to go. I'll be right back. I'm going to go empty it out. (laughs) I I read that uh, you were actually in thailand in 2004 when yeah. the tsunami struck obviously that was a, a terrible event i'm a lucky guy ian you know what so many of my clients turn, turn around and they say will where are you going for vacation this year and, and i and they say and i go why and they go because we want to make sure we're not going there yeah i mean you have quite a streak of, of picking great places for sure so uh you were there on vacation but it turned out uh, kind of turned into work so 
Can you walk me through that day when the, the tsunami oh hit. Yeah, so, so okay, I'll try and keep this story short, but it's, it's kind of a cool story. I'd spent the entire year popping in and out of Iraq and came mm-hmm. out without a scratch on me. And we'd been up to some all sorts of fun stuff and got into a few tangles with a few of the bad guys down there. And I came back, it was fine. And I'd said to my girlfriend at the time, I said, uh, you know, here's, here's the budget, book us a holiday in Thailand, three weeks. I just want to collapse. I don't want to do anything apart from get drunk, get asleep, and get laid and that's it so she books this place and we turn up and this place is like half built it's got one we're walking around it and it's all on the beach and i just go fuck this shit i've been living in crap all day and all year i'm not going to be staying here for three weeks so i literally get it straight onto the phone and uh and remember this is over christmas and new year the peakest of peak times obviously to be in thailand and i managed to find a room at uh, an amazing hotel i don't know where you've been to in called the amanpuri in phuket i haven't been but oh uh, my god one of the amman properties Very yeah, nice. yeah yeah and this one is off the charts it's amazing so i literally you know it's like a thousand bucks a night and the rest mm-hmm. and I, i'm like I, I, I'll never be able to afford this, but I'm not going to worry about it because I'm not staying in this building site. I've got to stay somewhere nice. And they did the usual, you know, you can stay for these nights, but this night you're going to have to check out. And my girlfriend's doing her pieces and go, oh, my God, we're going to get thrown out. I said, trying, let's see if they can get us out. They'll never get us sure. out. We're going to be in there. We're going to hold, yeah. hold it like a fort. And right. uh, so anyway, we get over there. So we check in uh, and it's Boxing Day morning. But early, early morning, all the all the, the, the glasses in the minibar started rattling. And I'm thinking, because we're on this, um, we're obviously not in the, one of the really mega rooms. We're in this room mm-hmm. on, on stilts up on the hill. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm thinking it's the wind that must be blowing it because I'm half asleep. So I'm frantically get over to the minibar and separating all the glasses so they're not all rattling together. Totally unaware that that was obviously one of the first af- aftershocks that had come in. Anyway, I then, we wake up later. I, head, I go to the girlfriend, look, I'm going to head down to the beach. I'll see you there. I go down and literally the water had receded. And mm-hmm. I'm like, what the hell? And the diving platform's on the beach and literally on the sand and there's little pockets of water with fish in it. And I'm like, this is bizarre. So obviously oh. being somewhat stupid, Ian, as you can probably imagine, I wander out to where <laughs> the new shoreline is thinking, what's this? And then literally yeah. me and a few other idiots that had decided to do this same all got washed up onto the beach literally with the first wave and wow it, there were two types of waves there's like the crescent wave you see in the big hollywood blockbusters and then right. you have the surge wave which is what we had which is like a bath filling up super quick the force i mean i'm six foot one i'm not a small guy throws mm-hmm. me onto the beach like a rag doll and wow. i'm not i'm unhurt as are the others and this australian guy goes it's a tidal wave. It's a tsunami. Head to higher yeah. ground. Now, the reason I mention the hotel is because if you want to go to a somewhat tsunami-proof hotel, the Amanpuri, you might be paying top dollar, but it is tsunami-proof because they have this concrete staircase of about 50 feet mm-hmm. from the beach up to where the hotel is. So we all leg it up there, and literally the water comes in and it, again and again and again until it's about sort of 25, 30 feet high. And my girlfriend comes down and she goes, what the hell, Will? What's going on? 
Anyway, to end of the story very quickly, I called up some contacts in Sky News and said, guys, I'm in Thailand. What the hell's going on here? And they go, Will, you in Thailand? And I went, yeah, I've yeah. just been washed up on the beach. And they went, oh, my God, can you go live? So I do a live report for them. Uh, the rest of my wow. holiday, because everybody had heard it because they repeated it all day on the channel, are calling me up saying, Will, I'm missing my brother, my sister, my mother, my daughter, whoever. Can you help? So I spent the rest of the holiday pretty much doing search and rescue and trying oh to help God. as much as I could. But sure. the reason... I mentioned the crappy hotel at the beginning, and you'll appreciate this being a travel guru, is that sometimes you have to listen to your instinct. Mm-hmm. And my instinct told me that hotel was wrong. And we sure. moved, and we moved mountains to move, and we went to the place that we felt comfortable at. We found out later, everybody died in that hotel. So oh if we'd God. stayed there, it would have been a very different end to the story. On that happy note, sorry, Ian. <laughs> yeah, on that note, it's time to end. No, I'm just kidding. Speaking uh, to the point you made about trusting your gut, I feel like that's really important in travel. I mean, I've, I've been in some uncomfortable situations before, but nothing, nothing quite like you. But what, what sort of tips do you recommend people employ to, to stay safer and smarter while traveling, at, either through, through like the whole airport experience particularly, but I suppose outside as well? Oh, my God. So, okay, really, really good that you mentioned instincts. That's my number one rule in life, whether it be at home, in the grocery store, in the mall, walking down the street, or if you're in a foreign country. You know, we are fundamentally animals. And uh, before we had the sophistication of technology and information and everything else that we have around us now that we take for granted, the only thing that we had to rely on was our gut instinct. You know, that's what saved us from the saber-toothed tigers. So... Mm -hmm. We got to remember that is our fundamental human uh, animal reaction to situations. And quite often in situations, we can't tangibly, you know, isolate or identify. It may be something that looks somewhat inert, but our gut's telling us there's something wrong. I, at the mm-hmm. times I've not listened to my instinct to the times that I've come really unstuck in. And I would say it's far better, it turns out to be nothing, than it turns out to be something, if your instinct was telling you the first. Sure. The next thing I would say is duplicate your documentation, really key. So when you travel overseas, and a lot of this has been learned by trial and error, let me tell you. Yeah. If you're, uh, you know, one of the great ironies in life is uh, if you lose your credit card or your credit card gets stolen in, uh, where is the telephone number that you need to dial to report it stolen? <laughs> On the back of that damn thing. (laughs) Yay, exactly. So I would always say, really key, uh, copy off that information, make sure you've got it, because if you do lose it, the ATM swallows it up or someone nicks it off you, then at least you know that number, you can dial it straight away. Likewise, your passport, photograph, photocopy or photograph, more to the point, your, uh, your picture page on your passport. Have you ever lost your passport overseas, Ian? I never have. Lucky guy. I can tell you it's the worst thing in the world Um, because if you have nothing to substantiate it, you have a nightmare with your local consular or embassy trying to ascertain and determine your ID. If you've got a photo of all your details and if if you're not as weird as me and you remember your actual passport number, you've got it there in a photograph, you can give it to the embassy and it can make the difference between getting a passport potentially in one day to maybe a week depending on where you are in the world. So copying that's good. When you're on a plane, I generally suggest, you know, the overhead storage bins where you put Mm -hmm. your stuff, don't put it in the Mm -hmm. one above your head, put it into the cat, the one above the guy on the other side of the aisle. Because you know what it's like? This is a tip that I like as well, I think. I'm curious to hear why you, why you. 
Well, you know what it's it. like. You put your stuff in the bin uh, above your head, and then some idiot goes and starts rummaging about in there, and you think, what are you doing? You're ruining my hat, or you're scrumpling up my jacket, or whatever, or you're going in my bag. At least if it's in the bin exactly. on the opposite aisle, you can see what they're doing. You can actually lose stuff. I've had a guy who, who had a laptop stolen when he was on a plane. Wow. If, if you do have to check a bag, um, you know, particularly if you have valuables in it, I mean, I... I check camera gear all the time, but I have to do it. And I, part of you wants to lock it up, but then it looks more conspicuous. So what do you recommend people do when they have to check a bag or, and particularly if it's valuable stuff? Okay. So what I would always suggest is with your, uh, with your bag, what I would suggest is unless it comes with locks actually integrated uh, on the bag, don't put extra bag locks on it. Because I think, as you rightly say, it identifies it to the baggage handlers and anybody else to say, wow, this guy's got something valuable in there. That's why he's gone to the extra effort of putting extra locks in there. And I'm not, I'm not going to incriminate myself too much, but we've moved some interesting cargoes. Uh, not illegal, I should add, Ian. Uh, but we've moved um, high value cargoes, which to be honest, we on one particular mission put it in literally like a rollback, uh, just zipped it up <laughs> and took it through. Sure. And we're talking a lot of value in there and sure. uh, in a particular territory. And it was uh, and it just literally went unscrutinized. We lost the job to another company. And hey, you know, all's fair in love and war. But what I heard subsequently is they put logs on the bag and it, the first the first movement, it got compromised and intercepted. Oh my God. So sometimes low key is best. That's great advice. How many miles a year do you typically fly? Oh my God, you know what? I don't count them up. I count them by points. <laughs> so do you, do you have status with British Airways or something? Yeah, you know, I, well, I, I haven't got it now because you know what they're like. If you don't keep it up, then they'll, they'll drop you. And I try and share right. the love amongst the airlines. I tell you what, the, I think it's the moment you get to silver or gold, it is worth it. Mm -hmm. You know, A, there is more likely a chance of getting upgrades. I want to hear your tip for getting an upgrade as well, Ian. And I'll share mine. Well, it's so tough to just get a off the cuff upgrade these days. The chances of just walking up to the gate and having it happen, if you don't have any status, is slim to none. But yeah, particularly if you do have status, if you can check in right when that opens at 24 hour prior to departure, uh, you know, sometimes having credit card with the airline will help you kind of jump up in line a bit as well. But for the most part, the random chance upgrades are kind of a thing of the past these days. And you really have to have the status, pay the price or pay with miles. And there aren't many ways around it, unfortunately, these days. I've managed to pull them off a couple of times. And, and I would say the best way to do it is when you get to the check-in stand, uh, you know, you're there at the desk and be nice, be friendly, but be quiet. And it's, and, you, and it's leaning forward and it's saying it really quietly so the people behind you can't hear uh, because it allows them psychologically to think, you know what, if I, if I do deny this person, then I don't look like a bitch or I don't look horrible or I'm not looking mean. And you, I just generally will lean in and I'll just say, look, I don't know whether there's any chance, but it, it, you know, are you fully booked and, uh, and is there any chance of any upgrade? And if there isn't, I totally get it. But you know what, if I don't ask, you don't get. And just yeah. do it with a bit of charm, do it with politely, do it quietly. And I found more often than not, it works. Well, I would say um, as general advice to anybody who has to go up to a gay agent and ask them for help about anything, that is absolutely the approach you should take. 
you do not see a lot of people yelling at the top of their lungs getting exactly what they want <laughs> and, and that kind of follows through to our world where we i have a saying always smile at the man with the gun <laughs> Sounds like something you've had to do many times. Plenty of times, yeah. <laughs> Plenty of times. What impact has travel had on you? And beyond that, what impact do you believe travel has on the world? Okay, going back to the tsunami story. So my partner, my girlfriend at the time turned around to me and she said, Will, should we go home? And I said, sweetheart, this is the time that we really mustn't go home. This is the time the local community needs our investment. They need us to go to the restaurants. You know, they need us to be supporting them because this is their optimum time of the year. And the same applies, I think, in the wake of this pandemic. We've got to travel. We've got to give our hard-earned cash to those resorts around the world that need it. And if we don't, they won't survive. And we're going to have a very different travel landscape. So I know there are a lot of guys out there who are very anxious still. Um, and okay, I may sound foolhardy and I'll probably get criticized for it, but I feel we've got to keep the wheels turning to maintain momentum. And if we don't turn those wheels, they're going to come to a grinding halt. That's Will Geddes. You can find him on Twitter at Will Geddes, and hopefully you never need his services, but just in case, International Corporate Protection is the name of his company. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave a review. Once again, I'm Ian Grimace, wishing you smooth travels. Peace.